This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. This is the Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer Podcast. Your chance to catch up on real life stories, expert advice and of course, shining a spotlight on Valentine's Day on today's episode. We were in conversation with Dr. Thry about some of the lies we're fed, the expectations around Valentine's Day. Dubai matchmaker and dating coach Eileen Lee Connor helping us find love in our 30s, 40s and beyond. Should you settle? And how can you meet somebody? Up and running nutritionist Stephanie Carl giving us some tips on preparing for a marathon, that post-nutrition as well. And Dr. Sarah Rasmi explaining how social pressure is ruining our mental health and our love lives. It is a psychology hour and recent research suggests that Valentine's Day can actually be pretty unpleasant for a lot of people, stressful, emotionally upsetting. Recent study of around 2,000 participants found that people who did not receive a gift on Valentine's Day reported more symptoms of depression than those who did. And while men in the study tend to bounce back in mood after... Two weeks, women's self-reported symptoms of sadness lingered for longer. We're talking about some Valentine's Day lies about love, some of these cultural norms about expectations not being met, and also why we do enjoy it as well. So lots of messages coming in now for Dr. Thryer, clinical psychologist. Happy Valentine's Day, Dr. T. Happy Valentine's Day, Helen. How are you? I am fine, thank you. I'm going to be completely open and transparent about my feelings around Valentine's Day. I like it. My my main gripe, and this I just say this as a journalist, is the number of press releases I get from restaurants being like, indulge your romantic side at, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Whereas I never go out on Valentine's Day. Well, tonight we're having steak. We're watching the Happy Valley finale. I bought my husband a, a USB-powered warming lunchbox um, and, a bal- <laughs> and a balaclava and... He got me some dried flowers with a kind of note about it being, you know, longer lasting than fresh. I was like, okay, fine. That's where we're at in our marriage. So I'm, I'm not, I'm certainly not a kind of a bar humbug, but I think I, I'm confident I was when I was single. I vividly remember, you know, watching Paranormal Activity one Valentine's Day with my friend Charlie and being like, I hate love. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's horrendous. What, what a crock, you know, all of that. Um, so we're all going to talk a little bit about um expectations today because apparently people do report high cultural pressure to impress their mates on valentine's day can you kind of unpack that a little bit for us of course i mean you know what's really interesting and it it was actually mind-boggling when i saw it when i looked at the 2022 data from the national retail federation you know in the united states people spent 23.9 billion dollars on valentine's day gifts between candy greeting cards, flowers, and gifts. And that went up from the year before that, which was $21.8 billion. Like, imagine how much money is spent on this day. So essentially, it, there's so much pressure around this day to impress your significant other. There's so many expectations that somebody has to either buy expensive gifts, take a person out on a massive date, um, express this never-ending affection for one for one another. And this is all being reinforced by um, the commercial nature to Valentine's Day, which, you know, interestingly enough, has nothing to do with what it is so, has socially become. Oh, all right. Interesting. 
I'm, I'm sensing some bitterness, Thiraya. I'm not. I'm not going to lie. Um, I, I think. Well, I think my biggest issue with Valentine's Day is is really the same issue I have sometimes with with all the other holidays. When they're commercialized, you're taking away from the deeper meaning of what mm-hmm. it's supposed to be, and I think that um, becomes very problematic. But it also adds a lot of pressure to individuals. I mean. Can you imagine what Valentine's Day is for a couple? And then imagine what Valentine's Day is for a a couple that has just met about two or three weeks ago. I always think that that must be the same pressure applies. Because what do you do in that situation? You're like, we're dating, but, you know, we haven't said I love you. And we don't. Mm -hmm. How do you have that conversation? Like, shall we just get each other a car? Oh, mega, massive cringe. I'm so glad that that's not any part of my life. We've got some lovely messages about what people, how people are spending Valentine's Day, Thryer. Michaela saying, handing out some affirmation cards and flowers to random people on the street with some friends. Michaela, love it. Donya's staying in, but they're having their first Valentine's Day with their dog, Lady Sophia. Akifa's having a Galentine's Day. Suleiman's saying, staying indoors, no plans, same stuff different day but we have had a number of messages for you dr t um talking a little bit about feeling conflicted about it for one thing but also about those expectations not being met we are going to go to the text line and i've also had a couple of questions about my valentine's day one that's saying where are we watching happy valley (laughs) Um, i bought it on apple all three seasons tonight it is the season three finale and we did write in our valentine's day happy Valentine's Day, and I'm very proud of that pun. And I'm actually saying, where did you get the warming lunchbox from? Um, I think it was it was Amazon, I believe. It's a black one, USB. He hasn't got a microwave in his office, so I thought this is this is the gift that's going to keep giving. So I'm pretty sure it's Amazon. I will try and find the link and send it to you on the WhatsApp. Talking Valentine's Day, of course. A little warning if you haven't quite got the message that it's happening today. Dr. Thry, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic, is on hand to help take your thoughts, navigate any concerns you might have, and lots of you getting in touch with how you're feeling around it. Um, Kathleen's saying, Ugh, the teddies, the horrid mugs, the other cheap tat. The best thing about Valentine's Day is all the cheap flowers the next day. Um, a message from Tom saying, As a guy, I feel pressured to come up with something special, especially. I'm in a two-year relationship, so it's pretty new. And my girlfriend wouldn't complain, but the expectations are there from her side naturally as a woman. I don't like even going to restaurants on Valentine's Day. It just feels very contrived and forced by society and what media puts on us. Can we talk through then a little bit about those expectations on men and and women and how they might differ? What, what, uh, What are you picking up on? Well, you know, interestingly enough, men are twice as likely... Uh, more than women to feel pressure to impress their partner with financial status and kind of these material possessions. So, you know, buying nice things and and like showering them with gifts or taking them to really nice places. Whereas women don't actually have that. They they feel more pressure to look good, to like dress up. In comparison um, between men and women, I guess it's a, it's usually about like 52% of women versus about 41% of men um, tend to, to worry more about like 
impressing their partner through their looks and their appearance. Now, there are a lot of different ads and movies that are out there. And, and when you look at those ads and movies that have to do with Valentine's Day, you notice that men are seen as kind of like aloof and they per prefer not to like showcase their affection and emotions and not even to like their partner. Whereas women are, you know, they, they appear to be like this emotional needy individual and care more about the holiday that men do and, and that men have like, you know, this pressure to like, to, to, you know, shower all of, you know, women with, with such beautiful things. And, and that really feeds into this consumerism, right? Mm -hmm. That you have to have these grand gestures rather than really just showing somebody how much you love them. And that could be done through, you know, your, your partner's love language rather than, you know, going into this extravagant kind of, um, um, pressure i would say interesting because Inter it, it does i was going to ask you about love languages which by the way if you missed last week's show i do urge you to go and check out on the podcast trying to establish what your love language is but I, th I think i think it comes back to expectations a lot of the time and, and the grand old age of 40 i'm only just starting to kind of manage mine and um, I really urge everyone to have a little listen to uh, Mo Gordat on, on the topic of happiness. And to his mind, it is all about expectations and those not being met. And it's not about having low expectations throughout your life, but understanding that the gap between expectations and reality is often where unhappiness can happen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's fleeting and sometimes it's an ongoing thing of, you know, I thought my life would be like this and it's like that and I just feel terrible the, the whole time. But sometimes it can really peak on days like today of, you know, oh, I thought I'd wake up to a bunch of flowers on my bedside table or, you know, I, th I thought that, right. you know, he or she would do this or say that and I feel flat. And then I see other people on social media and, you know, they're having this, you know, incredible outpouring of love and money. Um, and, you know, that's that's left people feeling lacking. So I think it is perhaps comes back to managing your own expectations, but also discussing what your expectations are with your partner, which sounds uh -huh, like a bit uh -huh. of a cringe, but can you do it in a, in a non-horrendous way, Thiraya? Of course. I mean, actually, if when you effectively communicate with your partner, you're basically just helping them minimize the amount of pressure and anxiety they experience in trying to impress you or do things for you. It, it actually takes so much edge off of the relationship and makes it a lot uh, a lot lighter to kind of engage in that relationship. And one thing that you said, Helen, when you said comparing your relationships, when you're looking at social media, this is such an important thing because we grow up with all of these Hollywood movies, whether it's Disney or, or, or otherwise, where we see these fairy tale, you know, stories of like the white, the night on the white, you know, horse and, and like, you know, he comes in and he's bringing these flowers and, you know, you see pretty woman and all of these different types of movies that you look at and you're like, Oh my God, this is what I want. And then I mean, that's, you that's, have these I've expectations. Be honest, pretty woman is not like <laughs> relationship goals to my mind, <laughs> but let, well, well, any, anything with Reese Witherspoon, we'll just go for that rom-com vibe. But yes. Right. And so, but, but essentially, I mean, these, these, um, you know, expectations that we have, they form all of the incorrect ideas that we have about love that contribute significantly to a sense of disappointment and a sense of, of loneliness that we experience because we, we convince ourselves that this person doesn't love us because, mm -hmm. you know, they're not doing these particular things for us that are a unrealistic in nature and especially not to, like uh, unrealistic to keep up all the time mm -hmm. and b may not necessarily be what we're actually looking for mm -hmm. 
Going to the text line, Hanan saying, we've been married 32 years and always buy each other a card and often a present. We also have a nice, nice meal, whether we go out, get a takeout or cook it ourselves. Some years we've gone away for the night or just a couple of nights. We show each other love all the time, but we like celebrating Valentine's. I've bought him theatre tickets and he's bought me a book that he knew I wanted. Thank you, Hanan. 32 years. Wow. And I love this. We've got a message from a couple... Arif and Heber a message are listening today. Hello, saying, We love Valentine's Day. When you're in a long-term relationship, it can be easy to forget to make time to focus on each other and celebrate your relationship. I think that is very, very true. As long as you're doing it, as it sounds like you are, on your own, on your own terms and not because you feel like you have to. I think it can be nice just to have a bit of a pause and recognise and appreciate each other and, as you're saying, kind of celebrate, celebrate that relationship. Joining us live on the line to talk about Valentine's Day, some of the lies about love, the expectations, the cultural pressures, but also the fact that sometimes it's just lovely to think about love. With Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Um, Dr. T, we've had a lot of people, I say a lot, we've got a number of people who have been feeling a bit, what sounds like, let down or confused by Valentine's Day today. So if it's all right with you, can we go to the text line? Of course. Let's do it. Okay. No name on this one. You can be anonymous if you prefer. Message saying, firstly, I don't expect anything for Valentine's at all. I bought my husband a card, made some cakes. Um, He bought me a card and said he'll make dinner tonight. I don't expect some sentimental message. But in the card, it said, sorry, I do everything wrong all the time. We are arguing a lot at the minute. We've been together seven years and it is rocky. I've never once said he does everything wrong. I just feel like it's really negative and didn't need to be written. Should I bring it up? Oh, yikes, Dr. T. Sorry, I do everything wrong all the time. Is that... I'm just playing devil advocate here. Does that, does that sound like a genuine apology or does that sound a bit passive-aggressive? Well, um, it sounds a bit of what we would call catastrophizing. Okay. So obviously the individual is not doing everything wrong all the time. So uh, now that being said, they could feel like that. There are individuals, for instance, who experience depression that tend to feel that everything is their fault and they do everything wrong all the time. So I can't speak to what the intention is behind it. But what I can say is that it's definitely something that could be addressed in uh, in a very compassionate and empathetic manner. I don't know if you want to do that today, um, but maybe at one point to to discuss it and maybe discuss with each other about whether or not this is something that you guys might want to have a conversation about with a professional. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Dr. T. Um, message here, and we were talking about earlier about, you know, those kind of expectations. And if it is important to your partner, you know, this, this text is summing up saying, I prefer not to do Valentine's Day, but it's important to my husband. So I buy him a card and write something nice in it. For 15 dirhams and two minutes of effort, it's not exactly a hardship. Um, and a, a question here about... I don't know, again, expectations. M on the text line saying, I said to my husband, don't buy me flowers for Valentine's Day as they're an expensive ripoff. He took this to mean don't buy me anything. I'm not really fussed. We've been together years, but I do think it's odd. A bottle of perfume, some chocolate hearts. It's not difficult. He's very black and white, more so as he gets older. I want to tell him I feel that down, but I know it will start a fight. Okay. Dr. T, it's time to get your marriage counselling hat on and I know you've been wearing it a lot recently. Um, what would you advise um, M, who has got in touch? You know, I think um, it's understandable why M feels the way that she does. I think 
also sometimes we forget that the way that we communicate should not be in the way that we understand the communication, but more so the way that the person is going to understand us. And so essentially by you saying, I don't want flowers, you didn't necessarily tell them what you did want. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds quite harsh, but the reality is, is that, you know, if we're expecting people to kind of jump into our minds and understand what we want and what we think of and what we're feeling, it's, it can lead to a lot of assumptions and a lot of uh, disappointments. So sometimes it's, it's okay to say, you know, I don't really want any flowers. They're a ripoff. I prefer that we go out together or experience something together. And Mm -hmm. so you're, and in that case, if, if you notice that then there's no effort that's put into um, acquiring that, that's a different conversation. But what I would say is also we, we have to remember that when we're communicating, it's important to be clear and, and, and <clears throat> concise, sorry, about what exactly we are looking for, even if we are mentioning what we're not looking for. I think I think both sexes are very guilty of this about expecting right. our partners to of be course. mind readers. <laughs> and yes, again, that that expectation piece. I'm sorry you're feeling disappointed today, though. I, I I really really am because we can build these things up in our head, and we know rationally, like we know it's just a day, we know it's commercial claptrap, da da da. But it, it you know it's it it is it is built up, and when we see other people having perhaps what we think we want, it can feel you know it can it can get to you. It can. Okay. Um, something it's not it's not getting to Belinda though she's saying I'm single and I love being single I'm 46 and can't ever see me wanting a relationship again I've always found today really cringeworthy and uncomfortable when in a relationship I did love the card I got from my crush when I was seven years old though his big sister helped made it it had a rose as a red type poem in it and I wish I'd kept it um and Niall Thank you for this, Niall, saying, I've been with my wife 13 years and we've stopped doing Valentine's Day very early. We used to get each other cards and a little gift when we first started dating, but now we don't. We love each other and we'll have a nice takeout tonight, but I don't understand the desire to confess love one day a year. I know she loves me when she adds my favourite bar of chocolate to the shopping or when she surprises me with coffee from the coffee shop. She knows I love her when I cook her a favourite meal just because or when I let her have the best space on the sofa. Oh, perfect. Niall... Just got just got goosebumps. Thank you for that. Um, oh goodness me! Um, thank you for that. Um, and a message here saying we've been together years. Don't do cards or gift. Valentine's gifts don't mean your partner cares about you more than if you've got nothing. It's just another way after Christmas for shops to boost profits. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I love Niall's point. You know, I, I really do. And I, I also you know loved Arif and Heber's point that you know sometimes Valentine's Day is a nice you know, reason to pause and, you know, look at your partner and go, actually, there are all these are lovely things. I do appreciate you about you. But we can do that on many, on many, many other days as well. Um, Dr. Thray, I wanted to ask you about things you can kind of remind yourself on, on Valentine's Day, whether you are single, happily coupled up or not so happily coupled up. Well, you know, I think one of the first things that you want to do is remind yourself that your worth isn't based on you know, whether or not you get something or your relationship status or even what you look like. I mean, learning to love and accept yourself is going to really expand your capacity to be around other people and to accept people for, for who they are, as well as yourself. So, I mean, Valentine's Day is fine. It's, it's really nice for a lot of people, for sure. Um, unfortunately, at times, it can perpetuate 
like really untrue messages about romantic love. And I think Niall said it perfectly. The, the idea is that love is not a feeling. It's not something that you are. It's not a status. It's a set of behaviors. It's a pattern of, of interactions that you continuously do for your partner, knowing that their happiness and your happiness are intertwined with each other, not dependent on each other, but very much intertwined with each other. So you know, communicating with your partner, honestly expressing what you're, what you appreciate about them, what you want from them, your needs, you know, um, setting boundaries, you know, me, Helen, I always have to include boundaries somewhere. <laughs> um, also not comparing your plans to other people. I think social media can be very painful on Valentine's day as it, as it is. And, you know, during the Christmas holidays and, and other holidays, I mean, you look at, uh, social media and you say oh I wish I could be this or I wish I could my partner could would have done this for me or I wish I was in a relationship so try try your best to kind of remind yourself that your Valentine's Day doesn't need to look like anybody else's as long as you're happy with your life as long as you're in a place of um, deep satisfaction and, and personal growth and that's really what you know that's that's what makes it. Absolutely. And then we've got lots of cheap chocolate and flowers to look forward to. And we can do a full Miley Cyrus and buy ourselves flowers for the rest of the week. <laughs> Dr. Soraya, thank you so much. Always an absolute Thanks pleasure. So. Wishing you and yours um, a lovely, lovely uh, week ahead. You can find Dr. Soraya at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Love can happen anytime. It's often said, sometimes we least expect it, it's often said it's never too late. But for many people in their mid-30s into 40s and beyond, finding that right partner can feel like a bit of a chore rather than fun. So as it's Valentine's Day, I know lots of you listening today will be looking for love or looking to bring a bit of a spark back. We have got Dubai matchmaker and dating coach Eileen Lee Connor with us. And before we get to some of the many questions I've had, by the way, Eileen, on social media, so you've definitely tapped into something here. How did you come to become a matchmaker, a dating coach. What an amazing job. I, you know, it is an amazing, amazing job. I, I think that it's something that I fell into very early on because of my interest in the human nature. I was a sociologist and psychology major in, in university, but also just talking to people. And I really love people's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I matched my brother with his wife. I matched my sister with her husband and Whoa! countless friends. But I never really thought of it as a job. You know, it was something that you just did naturally because mm-hmm. you see synergies and I, I picked up on that and I explore that and I, I kind of challenge that as well. So I was set up with my husband. We met on a blind date. Wow. And I now try and pay it forward as much as possible. I've had one marriage as a result of my setups, but I'm still and, and another one may be in the works. All right. You never know. Let's just say, but it must be really, really rewarding. But I wanted to know about what your demographic is like and we'll talk about Dubai as well so people that come to you is there a certain pattern that you've noticed you know is it more men than women what kind of age group are you working with here in in Dubai it's definitely and I and I talk to matchmakers around the world on a regular basis literally on a weekly basis and we compare notes and we compare trends and themes things like that and if we have very difficult clients how would we problem solve that Mm. Um, and it's a really wonderful international community that that I'm part of Um, I think that it's definitely more women worldwide. It's not just Dubai. Everybody thinks that it's where you are. But it's more of, um, you know, if you look at your own behavior, the older that you get, how much more do you go out? What's your energy like? And where are you putting it? Mm-hmm. And just being a little bit more aware of that and counteracting that. 
Can we talk about Dubai as a place for dating, though? Yes. Uh, this is where I nearly break into Rihanna's song, Finding Love in a Hopeless Place. <laughs> now, I know a lot of people that have met their partners here, but I also have quite a few single friends and certainly historically people that have left Dubai because they feel like it's not a good place to find a life partner. What's your take, Eileen? Well, I'm from New York. So, I, you know, there's movies made about this <laughs> where I come from, Sex in the City, Bridget Jones in London. I mean, it's all over the world. It mm-hmm. really is um, your perspective. And changing that perspective, because there's actually some matchmakers that feel that if you live in Alaska or someplace that's remote like that, you have a better chance because there's a smaller pool. But then that can also work against you. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, of my friends that did leave Dubai in order to, to meet a partner. A lot of them made big life changes mm-hmm. when they moved and that allowed them to meet someone. So it was, you know, changing jobs. So there wasn't such a demand on their time. So then they did have the energy to go out and meet people. So it wasn't necessarily a geographic problem. Sometimes it was a bit of a life balance and priority problem. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. But have you ever been on vacation and met somebody? Yes, I have. I mean, a lot, <laughs> that's because how you are on vacation is very different in your real yeah, life. Much you more know? attractive and tanned and relaxed when I'm on holiday. Exactly. And <laughs> you're, you're not expecting anything in the sense that, you know, you're just getting to know a human being. Mm-hmm. It's less important about what they do. It's less important about all these checklists. It's more about, wow, this person's just great. And you're exploring that. And then you get to meet somebody that you never would have imagined. True. Very true. Let's talk a little bit about midlife. What are some of the challenges that you think people experience when dating in their, I'm going to say mid-30s, which I think is young, but, you know, the 30s, 40s and beyond. What what are you bringing to the table um, at that age? I think it's important to think about just lifestyle because you're not in school anymore. Everybody's kind of starting to settle down, have their own families or get into their job in a very serious way. Mm -hmm. So their their time limit on the social life is is, starting to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, I think that's where it really becomes um, more difficult for people to meet people naturally you know, or randomly, they're not like hanging out in the den or in the student union or whatever, you know. Um, And then on top of that, parents get older, you know, there's other responsibilities like that. Um, You're ambitious, you're focused on different things, you're not putting yourself out there in the same way. And as you get older, you lose energy. Mm -hmm. And you might have things like kids at different stages. So I mean, if you're going to spend any time, you're like, you're going to evaluate it, your deal breakers are going to become more and more important. Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually. What about what do you think men need to know about dating women who might be, you know, 35, 40 plus? What do you mean by that? Like, as in they... how, how is it different to date a woman who's in that age group rather than in the early 20s? They take life in it more seriously, I think. And it's funny, because you see trends, right? What are deal breakers? And, and as... Um, more and more now, if a guy has had therapy or had some introspection or coaching of some sort, that's actually a very big green flag for women. They're like, oh, you know, he's much more advanced, emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I think that women, as we get older, we naturally have that, but we develop that more. Interesting. We want to hear your love stories this afternoon, 4001. If you want to talk about finding love in a hopeless place like Dubai, I say, <laughs> say, I that. say that tongue in cheek. It's not at all. It's not at all. Um, but also perhaps, you know, over the age of 35, 40 and beyond.
We're talking dating past 35, 40 and beyond today. We'd love to hear your success stories. On one hand, at this age group, kind of playing the field is narrow. You probably have more life experience. You might have had your heart broken. You might have some trust issues. But you also probably have a better idea of what you want to focus on in life. And to guide us through this, we've got matchmaker and dating coach Eileen Lee Connors with us today. And I wanted to tell you, Eileen, about a book that I read a few years ago. And I will just qualify this by saying I was interviewing the author and this is why I read the book. <laughs> the book was called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And I actually read it quite quickly after I'd met my now husband. And the premise of the book is once you get to your 30s and 40s, you need to start looking at what you need from a partner in a relationship rather than what you want. And I think whether you admit to it or not, we also kind of go into dating being like, you know, for me, I'm tall. I want I want a man who's minimum six foot. I want him to be, you know, a professional. I want, maybe want him to be a bit older, you know, what, whatever your criteria is. Actually, what you need to be doing is thinking, what do I need from somebody? So for me, after a string of some pretty poor relationships in my late 20s, I was like, I need someone who I can really trust. I want someone who is kind and clever and there's no game playing. And as I said, I'd already met my, I was already dating my now husband when I read the book, but it did really clarify for me that a lot of people do go into, into dating with quite unrealistic expectations. And that might be, you know, I'm 45, but I don't want to marry someone who hasn't got kids or they have to have all their own hair. For example, is this something you come up against when you're coaching clients? Yeah, we have a lot of expectations that are given to us from a variety of, you know, Hollywood being one of them, oh, your definitely. society, your culture, um, your peers. Uh, so for example, if you have this idea that I'm not going to settle and I'm going to wait for true love to come and hit me, right? And then you're 45. Actually, people look at you like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. How come you've never been married, never had kids? So it, it kind of turns, society turns against you. So they're not on your side. Mm -hmm. You have to find your own path and you have to create your own path and you have to really look at what makes you feel good. So how do you work with clients then? Just can you kind of break it down for us and let, let's make up somebody. Let's, let's say there is... Oh my goodness, let me think of a name. Um, Jamil. Uh, Jamil is 44 mm -hmm. and he is professional and handsome and earns good money. And he's had some long-term relationships but hasn't married anybody. And now he wants to settle down. Might not be that bothered about having his own kids, but would be open to meeting someone with children potentially. But nothing's really working for him. Online dating isn't working. You know, there's a few kind of hookups here and there. He's feeling a bit jaded by it all. How would you work with someone to help them potentially meet the love of their life? You know, it's interesting. Everybody I talk to is coming at a different point in their life. Mm. And my main question is why now? You know, and what isn't working for you? And as we get to know each other, I can start to see, okay, why didn't it work out with your last relationship? What, where, where are the themes? And how can we change it? How can we tweak that? What are you doing in terms of looking for the right person now? Are you doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome, which is often the case? Well, like going for the same type Yeah, the going time. for the same type okay. and then wondering why it's not working out. Mm -hmm. Or is it something that you can do yourself? I mean, it's your relationship. We all we hear every time that I'm the common factor. I'm the common denominator. And it's really... I mean, everybody's at a different stage of self-esteem. Mm. So that's why there's no one size fits all. And that's where I, I really, we have a consultation and I try to understand where that person is and start to see themes and how much time that, okay, so do we need to work on the self-esteem? Do we need to work on their communication skills? Do we need to work on their outer appearance? 
you know, um, their hygiene. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like, and then sometimes yeah. it does take fresh eyes or a fresh nose to, um, to help you out. <laughs> or let's, fresh pictures, something simple. Yeah, well, actually, let's, let's see if we can help someone out on the text line. There's no name. Okay. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, any real stories, um, we'd love to hear from you. A message here saying, I was 40 when I met <laughs> my um, ex-boyfriend online. He's now my husband for five years and I cannot complain. Thank you, Rhoda. Um, an anonymous message here saying, I've been single for three years after a divorce and decided to take the plunge and try dating. I've joined two sites. I've matched with a few women, but no one's messaged me back. It's destroying what little confidence I have. I'd love some tips or hints for how to get a conversation going. Well, I mean, we... That's something that's very common. I believe we live in the metaverse and it's going more in that direction. So you need to have an online profile and you need to have an offline profile. That doesn't mean that you have to put your life story out there the same way as you have a one-on-one. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have confidentiality issues and they don't want to be seen that way. But cleaning up your profile means having decent pictures. Don't have pets in it. Don't have other bros in it. Don't... Don't show yourself Especially in the gym. Especially ones who are better looking than you. <laughs> yeah. Don't ride a motorcycle. They're, don't smoke a cigar. I mean, these tropes are very tired. What the, about the holding the fish up? Those photos? <laughs> Do the girls not like those? I hear, I hear no. <laughs> I don't know any girls that actually are like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what a massive trout. But let's not go, let's not go near that. So what, what, what makes a good photo for online dating? Though? Just being, um, having like an open face. So, for example, in a more lifestyle, casual, just having a bright face that's like welcoming, mm-hmm. you know, and, and having your mindset. It shows through your, your eyes. You smize whether you're a guy or a girl. So what then about some of those conversation openers? Let's say you do match with someone online. Don't just say hi. Don't Thank just you. say hey. Hey. Hi. Don't say something that is like an icebreaker. And you can look up icebreakers online. I have I post icebreakers on my, my social media. It's like just start with like. I'm curious about you. Tell me about you. Because the bottom line is that women want to be seen. So how do you see them? Not just, oh, nice dress, which is kind of creepy, Mm -hmm. you know, nice um, whatever. Don't comment on their physicality. Comment on like their common interests. Comment on, you know, what brings you here. But then like, don't just do the Dubai questions. Try to be clever about it. Don't just say that it's the, the weather or something, you know, try to what, what's the book, last book you've read? Mm-hmm. You know, do you kill plants or do you do they thrive in your care? <laughs> you know, why? Like, just kind of make it a little bit more flirty and don't get too serious too quickly. Um, and then try to meet up. That's exactly what I was about to say. A message here from Nadia um, saying, hi, both great time and great topic. Um, how long should you chat to someone online before you meet in real life? Oh, good question. I think within a week. Don't ch- chat too long, but then chat more when you're when you've met. Okay, because I think the chat is really, really important. It's not just the physicality of it. And don't try to go to sleep, you know, I mean, to bed with somebody right away. I don't want to get too into that, but um, or be your grandmother. And it's there's no judgment call on it as far as I'm concerned. I'm not the morality police. But I do feel that um, if you are the type of person and most women are, let's face it, they get attached more easily than men, then wait and get to know the person. There's no substitute for time. Message here saying, I'm 36, don't want kids, been single for four years after an 11-year relationship. Dating is hard. It is. Online apps suck and there are precious few women without kids. I still want to travel, see the world, but I'd rather not do it alone. Sometimes I have the feeling that I, quote, miss the boat on that one. And when I was single, this was a big thing. This was the kind of the chat amongst my female friends was that Dubai was full of Peter Pans. And it was full of men that came here and had a brilliant time and dated and went out. And then they turned around and were like, Oh, I'm 40 mm-hmm. and everyone's coupled up. 
and I'm the last man standing. And yeah. I don't know if that's changed because I'm obviously not in the dating scene. So people out there, let me know. Are you a Peter Pan? <laughs> Are you surrounded by them? We are talking love all afternoon and kicking off with finding love, especially in your 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond. And joining us live in the studio, we've got Dubai-based matchmaker, dating coach, Eileen Lee Connor with us. And you can, of course, get in touch and share your love stories, but also any concerns you might be having. And that's, in honesty, the majority of the messages we've got for you, Eileen. So we're going to try and get through as many as we can. Love it. Kay has said... What would your advice or tips be for a single mum dating again after six years single? Been out of it for so long. I think mm. the longer you wait, the harder it gets. I don't mean the obvious ones like not introducing kids straight away, but how about saying you have kids on your profile? I've heard this is a big no-no, but I don't want to lie to people. Please help. Well, I think, first of all, when it comes to your dating profile, there shouldn't be anybody or any other distraction apart from you. This is about getting to know you as a person, not because you're a mom, not because you're a daughter, not because you're an ex-wife or any of the widow, any of those things. Um, you just don't want any negativity. Not that kids are a negativity, but just get to know you as an adult today, whatever your past is, mm -hmm. um, and, and start rebuilding yourself and your self-esteem, because that's the best thing you can do as a parent as well. There you go. Hope that helps. But I like I like that. It's about you on your own merits and everything everything you've been through as a person. And as you say, it's not about kids being a negative because they're not. And I know a lot of people would love to marry someone who's who's got kids. Mm -hmm. But about you know, of course, but don't, but don't wait until you're three months down the line by going, yeah, I can't meet you this weekend. I've got the kids. You might want to be upfront about it in a conversation once, yeah. once things have been established a little bit. But you don't want to put your job in front of you. You don't want to put your age in front of you. You don't want to put anything apart from this is me today, right? And then we can talk about lifestyle another time. Um, a message here, again, anonymous saying, um, hi, both. I'm in my 40s, very energetic. A lot of my friends are 10 years younger and I look younger than 40. As a result, a lot of men that approach me are much younger. It's flattering, but I don't really see a future with men who are at a different life stage to me. And a lot of men in their 40s up seem to have a lot of baggage. So that puts me off too. Any There's advice? a lot of, I just hear a lot of judgment in that. Without getting to know anybody in particular, um, everybody has different life experiences. They make them who they are. I don't think that that should be a judgment against them until you actually get to know them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, just talking about celebrities, not that I care that much, but a lot of people can relate to this. Like Gwen Stefani, she's like 54 Whoa. and she's got three kids and she's got a new relationship. Mm -hmm. Do you think that somebody should have held against her that she has three kids, you know, and a rock star husband and blah, blah, blah? Well, I mean, if she can do it, <laughs> if Jennifer Lopez, it. you know, she just got remarried for like the 18th time or something. Good for you, Jen. Good for you. But no, but it does, it does go to show that, yes, you know, age can be a factor for some, for some reasons. But I think life stage is actually in some ways a lot more important. You can't force someone to be at the same life stage as you. You know, they need to get there get them by, them by their size and yeah, put that judgment aside. Yeah, because people, just because you've been on earth, I say, I say this all the time, just because you've been on earth at a certain amount of years doesn't mean you arrive at the same conclusions. So therefore, don't judge that. You know, why are you not married at 44? Do you want people to judge you that way? Mm -hmm. Because whatever your reasons are, that doesn't make you a bad person nor a viable candidate for a partnership. Well said. Let's see if we can help out this message saying, I'm 37 and female and I don't see myself finding a real partner through a dating app. How can I keep it genuine and natural and meet someone the classic way? Now, I think I, I assume the classic way means like, 
you know, we bumped each other in the supermarket or... The Hollywood you know, way. Yeah, or, we, you know, we met through mutual friends. Now, my kind of other job, which I haven't done so much recently, is I'm, I perform wedding blessings, so I'm a, a, a celebrant. And you'd be amazed by the number of couples that when we have our first chat and sit down... The vast majority met online. I think yeah. this is the classic way now in 2023. That's the classic way. And for kids that are growing up today, they sure. see nothing wrong with that. You know, we're going to be in the metaverse. So what, what advice would you give to this listener who's, who I guess has got some, some you know, issues about, about meeting online? I think that first I'd have to see their, their profile and see what they're doing wrong or right mm-hmm. and how you can change that. Maybe there's a pattern there, just like a pattern in real life. You know, there's patterns on online, and how do you how do you put yourself forward? You mentioned earlier some of the kind of the no nos for the bros online in terms <laughs> of the photos that you shouldn't have. What what are some of the common mistakes or pitfalls that you see women making with their online dating profiles? They make it too sexy. It's not a boudoir shoot, and then you wonder why they only want one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big one. Or they don't make an effort, and therefore they look way older or just not fun. People want to see energy. They want to be attract. They're attracted to energy. Will you show me off air some of some some good dating profiles? I'm curious. I'm just really not for me. I'm just curious. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about first dates. What do you tend to recommend that you do and don't do when it comes to location, duration, all of that stuff, Eileen? I think it's how you meet. Like if you're if I were to set you up on a date, then there's intention there. Mm-hmm. And and if I set you up on like an adventure date or you know, I would find out what 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 your, what your preferences are. And I'd probably tap into that. But if you don't know somebody and it's a completely blind date and you're being set up or you just met somebody in a supermarket, how do you know any of that stuff? So then you have to do maybe something a little bit more quiet because you don't know. I mean, I don't know if I want to be with this person more than two hours or even mm-hmm. 15 minutes. In the right? escape room. Right. <laughs> Get me out. That's, that's your first date, the escape room. <laughs> so activities can be good. Activities are great because you're, you're seeing how that person responds in real time to adversity or to fun or whatever, just how the reaction to something is. The same way that a lot of people say if you um, go out on a date and how they treat the waiter or waitress. Oh, big time. Right. But like it's situational, mm-hmm. right? Something happens. What if you had a di- dinner date and there was no interaction with the waiter because everything was perfect, right? But what happens if the, something isn't perfect? How do they react? How do they ask for help? How do they – that's really – can I ask what, what happens if you do go on a first date and everything's been great online and it's chat, chat, chat and there's banter and everyone's trying hard and it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you've seen pictures of each other. There's no surprises there. But you meet and there's just like, uh, uh, no spark, nada. How much time can you feasibly let pass before you're like, OK, this has been great to meet you. See you never. It depends. <laughs> See you never. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of it this way. You can get a lot of CVs across your desk that match your job description. Until you meet them in person, how do you narrow it down? And this is the same way. I mean, it is one of the most important interviews you're ever going to meet. But don't be nervous. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. I remember being so nervous before going on my first date with my husband. So nervous. I remember sending a photo of, on my BlackBerry. This is how long ago it was. To my friend Naz and being like, oh, my God, I think I'm going to vomit. I'm so nervous. So first impressions. And we've only got a couple of minutes left, Lonnie. Yeah. But I wondered if you could give us some quick tips for making a great first impression in real life, we've got past the, the online dating bit. Okay. It's time to be face-to-face. What are we doing? You gotta, I, I think the best and the most attractive thing is if you're enjoying yourself. One way or the other. If you're, like, if you're desperate, that's a, a no-no even for desperate people. Desperate people and desperate people, you know, they, they don't like each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you look like you're having fun and you're genuinely curious, like I see you. 
right? That's attractive. Even if we don't end up together, I see you and I hear you and I appreciate the time that we have together. Eileen, for anyone that wants to work with you, find out more about the matchmaking, dating, coaching, which I think sounds really, really interesting for getting that fresh perspective. What's the best way of getting in touch with you? Go to DubaiMatchmaker.com. Follow me on my socials, which is at DubaiMatchmaker.com. And you can fill out an application directly there. And I have two types of memberships. One is free. That's a passive membership where you can be matched with a paying client or if other matchmakers from around the world get in touch with me and they have clients here and you match up with their profile. So fill it out as much as you can, okay. right? That way you can be more easily matched. And then there are paying memberships depending on what your needs are. And I don't know what that is until I speak with you. It's been so fascinating to catch up today. Thank you so, so much. Um, really appreciate it. Happy Valentine's Happy Day, Valentine's. however you are celebrating. Now, despite its romantic origins, for many people, Valentine's Day can be a bit of a source of stress and anxiety. There's a massive societal pressure to have this perfect, memorable day with a partner. There's the financial cost of gifts. And then you throw in the impact of social media and marketing. So we're talking about social pressure today with Dr. Sarah Rasmi, psychologist, the managing partner at Thrive Wellbeing Centre. Dr. Sarah Rasmi, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Except I'd love you to, to kind of start by defining what social pressure is, because I'm not sure I quite understand it. Can you kind of break it down for us a little bit? Absolutely. So when it comes to any group that we live in, in our uh, society, in our communities, they're governed by norms and expectations. And what we do as individuals often is check in consciously as well as kind of unconsciously to evaluate how we're doing relative to those norms and expectations. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's a kind of conscious, but sometimes subconscious, you know, not am I winning, but kind of how am I doing? <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and this all kind of goes into very sharp relief when, when we are looking at things like Valentine's Day, for example. Um, let's talk, we're going to be talking about some of those comparisons, but I wanted to get a bit of an insight because so much of our socializing is done through social media, through our phones. What do studies say about our screen time? Like how much, how much time we're spending on our phones and what are we doing on them that might be contributing to some social pressure? I think we can, uh, everyone will say that they're spending a lot of time on their phones and probably most people would also say that they wish that they were spending less, but it's very dif difficult to do so because circling back to expectations, there's this pressure for us to not only be connected all the time, but also to showcase what it is that we're doing, mm -hmm. sometimes because we enjoy sharing and other times because we're looking for approval and validation. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely something that we all need to keep an eye on. And the research is showing that a lot of times, the more time that we spend online, uh, the more likely we are to struggle in our relationships. It can impede our interactions, the quality of our interactions, the duration of our interactions, as well as on our general mental health and well-being. Can we zoom in on romantic relationships in particular and some of the images or messaging that we might be seeing on social today and, and how it can be affecting how we feel about our relationships, Dr. Sarah? What, what impact do you think the, the lovey-dovey photos and the you know, images of beautiful bouquets and things like that can have on people? And I, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just curious um, to, to kind of get your read on the impact it can have on some people. 
So I think in general, where we end up having an issue is when in a couple, one person desires something different to the other. So Mm. if both people are kind of of the view that it's not that important, we can showcase and highlight and celebrate our love any other day of the year, then that's probably not going to really cause any challenges. And looking at the carefully curated images and advertisements and dinners and all of that is probably not going to create any any um, turmoil. But if we have one person who really wishes that their partner would engage and that partner is not living up to expectations, then we're likely to face an issue. And some of those expectations come from the things that we're seeing online through um through different companies and venues, and sometimes it comes from our social, our social network itself. So seeing what other people's partners are doing for them can be a little irritating <laughs> if your partner didn't do what you were hoping they would. What about if you're single and don't want to be? Because I'm, you know, a lot of people love being single, but what? But this, you know, presumably can be a bit triggering for, for that group as well. Yes, absolutely. And I was going to clarify in the same way that you did. So if you're single and you're happy being single, then probably you're going to be even happier that you're single when you see all of the different things online uh, around Valentine's Day. But if you are feeling the pressure of that social clock that, you know, for example, I'm 35 or 52 and I really should be partnered and I wish I was and look at everybody having these meals and getting these roses and teddy bears, then it can be uh, quite, quite triggering and uh, and upsetting. Talking social pressures today, yes, on Valentine's Day, but also life in general. Dr. Sarah Rasmi with us today. She is speaking to us from Thrive Wellbeing Centre, where she is there as a as a psychologist and. I'm very interested by the messages we've got on this. Um, Dr. Sarah, we've just got a message saying, anti-Valentine celebrations are just as important, says Mohammed, sobbingly. Um, we've also had a message here. Um, and no, who is this from? Let's have a little look. No name on this one saying, I think whichever side of the do or don't argument you're on on Valentine's Day, if your partner is on the opposite side and it means a lot to them, I think it's nice to put in the effort for them. I like Valentine's and anniversaries. I love cute cards from my husband and handwritten messages. He can take it or leave it and is very unbothered, but he knows how much I love it and how much it means to me. So he puts the effort in and I appreciate it even more. I like that. That sounds, that sounds good to me. What about you, Dr. Sarah? It sounds great. It sounds like they've had a really good conversation around what the needs and expectations are. And even when there's a disconnection or disagreement, one is saying, you know what, it means a lot to the other and it doesn't really mean that much to me, so I'm just going to do it. That's awesome. It doesn't need to be a point of contention, I don't think, a lot of the time. Um, zooming out, let's talk a little bit about social pressure and its effect on our perception of milestones in life, you know, finding love, having kids. Can you explain that relationship? Yes. So social clock is this idea that we are supposed to hit key milestones at certain points in time and that if we are delayed or out of sync with those expectations, that there is something wrong with us. And sometimes we put that pressure on ourselves. Sometimes we perceive that pressure from people around us. And sometimes it's a combination of the two. Do you think it's changed 
over the years much, you know, because I feel like, you know, the age that people are having children has certainly got later, you know, huge number of people um, getting divorced and having very happy second or third marriages, far more common than it was, you know, 20 years ago. How, how, does, how do we change these social clocks? They have absolutely changed, and we've seen on generally a global level the shifts that you were referring to. At the same time, we exist in societies and groups, and those norms and expectations also shift. So maybe now you're not expected necessarily to enter into marriage in your late teens or early 20s. It's more by the time you kind of hit your late 20s, early 30s, but that expectation is still there. So those people who don't need it often, even if they're comfortable with where they're at, are meeting that that judgment and sometimes even stigma from people around them. And lastly, Dr. Sarah, I wanted to ask about how to stop the comparisons, how to avoid that social pressure and focus on each other as a couple on today, but every day. Are you able to give us a quick minute tip with Dr. Sarah Rasmi? Yes, we will never stop comparing, but our comparisons should be more balanced. If we're not feeling good about our relationship, we're going to harp on all of the happy images that we see, and we are going to ignore evidence of people who are also not celebrating or who might be going through a difficult time. So Mm -hmm. zoom out and look at the collective experiences and remember that what you see is not always what you get. Usually there's a lot more going on behind the scenes too. Well said indeed. Dr. Sarah Rasmi, thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. Have a lovely day ahead, a lovely week ahead. Dr. Sarah Rasmi speaking to us from Thrive Wellbeing Centre. Talking training now and lots of things happening on the sporting front in the coming days and uh, and weeks, including the Rack Half Marathon, which is this weekend, 18th of February. So we're bringing in the expert, Stephanie Carl from Up and Running. She's a clinical and sports nutritionist to help people get in the zone ahead of a race, but also talk some general sports nutrition. So the countdown is on. Stephanie, a lot of people, you know, the, the shoes are ready, the training's up to date, and it's now those little kind of final touches of you know, putting the gels in their bags and, you know, making sure they've got all their gear. So how does someone prepare themselves on the food front in the last, you know, week or days before a big run? Any advice? Hi, Helen. Hello. Yeah, this is a really great time of the year for the endurance athlete, whether you're you know, in it for a personal challenge or you're actually really competitive or you've done it before and you really want to, you know, perform better. Certainly your fueling and your hydration strategy should be well planned and and probably it should have happened as part of your training um, because nutrition is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would tend to say that uh, the, the strategies for people who are really competitive should have started about seven days before the actual event. And but if seven days hasn't uh, isn't you know, enough four? time, yeah, like no, there is a four day sort of window as well. But quite often, people in that seven days they do something such as it's training low, so they stick to their training program. They lower their amount of carbohydrates, and it just makes the muscles and the enzymes more sensitive. It's a bit like out with the old, so that when the new comes in, it really embraces it. Yeah, you've got legs. all the stuff you need. So what about then food to eat and then foods to definitely avoid if you are looking, you know, for a bit of a PB or you're looking to be competitive come race day? Yeah, come race day, um, you are, food actually is not a big thing 
as in you don't have too many choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you're usually racing quite early in the morning, and so the optimum time to kind of carb load is the night before, if not starting in about three to four days before. Um, knock your, your your training down a little bit so you can actually get maximum um, glycogen storage. But a lot of athletes don't have much muscle and they don't have a big liver because they don't want to cut around weight. So they aren't necessarily that well endowed for having as much glucose on board as maybe someone with you know upper body strength. Tell me about carb loading. This sounds, this sounds like the best bit of training. <laughs> yeah. How and what kind of carbs? Because I'm guessing, you know, going full Garfield with lasagna probably isn't going to be the best plan the night before. <laughs> In actual fact, all of the research says that carb loading, the best carbs to take are these ones called amylose, or amylose which is a Never sugar. Never heard that, that is, before. It's, it's basically a starch. So starches are this is the only time you can have white starchy carbs. So potato, rice, pasta, even pulses, oats, bread. How much you have is, um, you know, you don't want to spike your blood glucose and you don't want to feel uncomfortable, but it's about, say, having maybe four to five of these um, portions at a meal, then maybe another three hours later, stocking up again. You're really just trying to maximize the glucose, stored glucose, which is called glycogen, in the muscle, but you don't want to have so much that it's going to turn to stored fat. Mm-hmm. And then, then and you don't feel like you've got that massive bloat as you're kind and, of chugging around. Yeah. Yeah. So Trial the carbs. Good. And yeah, not the time to be trying new foods for the first time, perhaps as well. You don't want to take any too, too big a risks. So, in, in terms of race day, what about fueling on the go? So, hydration before. Fueling, you know, and you know, people. Some people are doing five k. Some people are doing twenty one. We had a marathon over the weekend. What can be really beneficial to keep keep you going and keep that wall away? I think everybody would benefit from having a an an amylose type um, glucose breakfast. Something like some oats. If you're sensitive to to milk, don't have milk, so maybe have some oat milk. But maybe grate some apple in there. Nothing that's going to cause any tummy issues. You might even put a little bit of honey, but really want these slow-release carbohydrates in your gut so that digestion slows things down. You don't want protein. You don't want fat. Okay. Um, you're really there for, for carbohydrates. How do you feel about gels and things like that as, as, uh, during the run? Yes, and that's really the time that you might consider these. Um, you can't, especially if you're running, take uh, much in the way of foods with you. And you once you're having your pack lunch, no, anyway. it's not like cycling. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you, any race, if you're only doing three, five, or even ten kilometres, you haven't got time. You don't need it. Um, Sixty to ninety minute racing. You just get on with it. Um, Hydration, yes. And sometimes the hydration beverages will have a little bit of carbohydrate and some electrolyte. Um, So, you know, take advantage of that. But if you are doing the full marathon or anything that's over two hours, three, four hours, then you do actually start your carbohydrates a little bit earlier. Because once you stop and your body says, look, I'm already on a different fuel source, it's pretty hard to then kick the gut back in and Mm. that's of course where the gels are coming from now what about afterwards or i guess muscle recovery or just general resting up is this the time to push the boat out and have some fun or could you still need to stay sensible stephanie Uh, the 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 first thing they say is to rehydrate and to take in carbs sometimes people are actually racing again the next day 
and they have and 24 to 48 hours is not a long time to actually restore muscles and repair mm-hmm. So carbohydrates are a biggie there. You can go for, say, less starchy ones and some more quicker-acting ones. You know, you might have some um, supplementary uh, beverages, which are really um, well-tailored, and there's some great ones around. And, of course, a bit of protein just to kind of, you know, meet the, the needs of muscle repair. Stephanie Cole, to the text line, as I was saying, hi both, I'm not a runner, but I do hit and resistance classes in the morning at 7am. If I eat before, usually half a banana, I feel sick. If I don't eat, my energy is really low. Any advice? As I'm the same as you, I try and do something like 7, 8 in the morning and I don't normally eat before, to be honest. Are we going wrong here, Stephanie? What? Oh no, you're making a face. Look, it is is a pretty personal thing and I can understand that. I think I've gone through the same sort of stages um, and maybe the answer is just to make sure that you have maybe something before bed um, that might take you through um, and get you over that sort of hump. But mm-hmm. um, Or maybe even at just a beverage. It may be that you need a bit of electrolyte along with the carbohydrate. Okay. And generally, what you, if someone's coming to you and they're like, okay, I'm going to go on a bit of a fitness plan here and I'm going to be working out in the, in the morning. I'm going to have a good breakfast before though. Not, I don't want to say good breakfast, but that sounds big. But I'm, I want to eat before because some people feel nauseous in the morning if they don't eat. What can be good for a pre-workout snack or meal? The, um, you're going to use carbohydrate. So anything that is maybe a slow-release carbohydrate, look, it could even be something as simple as a well-tailored um, cereal bar. Mm-hmm. It could be a banana. I mean, these are all good uh, things. Can I come back to well-tailored cereal bar? Because <laughs> this implies that not all cereal bars are made equal. So what should you be looking for in a good one? Uh, well, I probably look to these Mother Earth ones from New Zealand. but <laughs> She said, <laughs> Miss New Zealand in the corner. Mm-hmm. Yes. They make all things good there, you know. Um, but, what about making um, your own? What? Oh, absolutely. No, these flapjacks and, and things that you can make. You can even add a little bit of protein powder. Um, I even quite like the thought of something like um, collagen, um, just to get a bit of good quality protein that's more to do with soft tissue. I think it's got a great place in a healthy diet. Um, Sabrina here saying, um, hi both, curious about supplements for exercise. Um, As a woman in my 30s and a healthy weight, do I need to be having protein shakes? Um, You know, as far as the endurance athlete is concerned, the only thing that's ever really shown to have some benefit is caffeine and everything else, any other ergogenic aid is a bit, um, you know, insignificant. Um, But as far as supplements are concerned, we tend to say no, um, that you would be better to eat rather than take something. Um, and, I mean, eating is always, you know, a lot more nutritious. Mm-hmm. You've got a range of things. You've got fibre. Um, you're probably going to eat better than if you take a protein um, powder. But if you're not having enough protein, I do think that there is a place for them. How can you calculate how much protein you should be taking on? Yeah, really good question. There are two things that are kind of set in stone and they have a little bit of leeway. One is protein. You take your current weight. So let's say a 60 kilo lady. She's got to have about 0.8 grams per kilo of her body weight. Mm -hmm. And then she could have an upper range of about 1.3. If she was a real bodybuilder or doing a lot of um, strength building work or in the military or something like that, it could be higher. But on the whole, we do have this this um, range of protein. And I would tend to say that more something like one gram. So that would be 60 grams per day, 
two, maybe 1.3. So that's about 90 grams of protein. I'm not getting anywhere near that. Okay, I'm just doing some fast maths. Okay, right. Good to know, Stephanie Carl. For anyone else that does want a bit of advice, and as I said, you are a clinical nutritionist, but also looking at sports as well. What's the best way of getting in touch with you and which up and running can you be found at? I'm at the Wassel branch. Um, that is the um, uh, sort of the core to, to, to up and running. Um, and as far as, as nutrition and sports physiology, we have the VO2 max testing there, um, indirect calorimetry, sort of the um, uh, all of the, the data machines that um, we really apply to people you, who want to take things seriously. Sports nerds all gathering there, yeah. analysing data. All right, brilliant. If anyone wants uh, Stephanie Cecil, just send me a message saying nutrition or sports, I will send them your way. Stephanie Carl, thank you so, so much. Wishing you a happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.